Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Learning Curve. This week is another, well, let's call it an innovation edition. This is Kara Kandel, and I'm really excited to be here on a weekly basis with my friend Gerard Robinson. Gerard, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Everybody hanging in, huh? Everyone's hanging in. I think officially it's week four, but it feels like month four. <laughs> and uh, no, we're doing well, and, and we're blessed and safe. And uh, my wife and I, in fact, have contributed to a fund for employees at the University of Virginia who've uh, been let go at least for the time being because yeah. many of them are being hit by what's taking place. And many of them are also moms and dads. So uh, we're just trying to also be good citizens in the process. Yeah. And, and keeping keeping all of those folks in mind who are really on the front lines. I'll say my husband's out there and we've got mm-hmm. a lot of folks too, just, you know, doing the, doing the things that um, give us all comfort, but putting themselves at risk doing it, like delivering our Amazon packages or our takeout or whatever the case may be. So I know we're keeping, we're keeping all of those folks in mind. And, um, and also to say that, yeah, it's going on week four and it feels like Every day is a little bit the same, but also um, with regard to what you and I spend so much time thinking about, which is, you know, educating kids K to 16 and and educating people beyond that, right? Um, I feel like the conversation's shifting in a pretty powerful way, Um, you know, and I think we're going to hopefully get some of that with our guests today. I expect beyond just this sort of like triage emergency situation and into a a more interesting and I think productive dialogue about, wow, you know, what comes next and how, how is what we're experiencing right now going to impact the future? So that's pretty exciting stuff. Um, we've got actually a story. I have to say this week we are plugging our own Pioneer Institute, Gerard, because they've put out a pretty great paper, I think, that is just really relevant to the moment and helping us think about, um, how states should move forward during this crisis. And I know a lot of people out there, especially our listeners have a lot of opinions about this. Um, people are, I found that the, the range of emotions around what your school is doing or isn't doing and what your state is doing or isn't doing, at least among my sample of my colleagues and friends, it's just, it's hugely diverse, right? It's like, you're either really getting it right, or people are really upset. And I think a lot of state leaders and school officials probably feel like nothing that they do is going to be the right thing to do. But um, in this pioneer brief, um, so Julie Young, virtual schooling pioneer, along with pioneers William um, Donovan, provides some tips on how states should be moving forward during COVID-19. And I think that the whole brief is worth a read, but I just want to dive pretty, you know, d- read a little list here of the top tips that this paper gives to our state leaders. And so first of all, number one is understand the level of equipment and internet access that families have. So if there is one thing this pandemic has taught us, it's probably that we should have been doing that a long time ago. Um, You know, a lot of states have been sort of stubborn in moving to anything that resembles online learning or blended learning, as you know, Gerard. Um, But this one seems like we should at least be undertaking audits to understand the resources that our families have, probably beyond their um, technological resources as well. Number two, seems pretty obvious, but why haven't we done it? equip schools for virtual instruction, which includes tip number three, preparing your teachers for virtual instruction. So we're learning that we need learning management systems. Schools need to be able to deliver content to kids in a way that engages them and in a way that does more than just, you know, stop learning loss or even try and halt learning where it is, but progresses learning. We can do it, but we need to be prepared to do it. 
And um, lesson four, most special needs students can be served. So we've had the conversation on this podcast before, Gerard, about this idea that should we just not educate kids if we can't educate everybody equitably? And it's a really difficult question. I think it's one that deserves a lot of attention and discussion, but let's not pretend that there aren't huge inequities already in our system, right? And this this brief, um, Julie Young and William Donovan say, most special needs students, in fact, can be served, but we need to think ahead. IEPs need to reflect what you're going to do in times like these. How do you shift online into online instruction with kids with certain special educational needs? And then I would also add to that, if you can't shift, what are you going to do instead? And the, the fifth, this I have to say is my personal favorite because it's one that I have a really hard time doing at the moment, and that is establish daily schedules. Clear expectations should be in place for when students and teachers are expected to be logged on. I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about there with regard to synchronous, asynchronous learning. How are you going to do this? And certainly, we're not going to figure that all out in this moment. But I think that this paper in particular find, really gives a lot of food for thought as to what we should be learning right now, preparing for over the summer, if schools indeed aren't back in session, and thinking about in the fall so that we don't find ourselves in this position again. One of the reasons I'm so glad to maintain an affiliation with the Pioneer Institute is because of policy briefs like this. You know, you take two people who've done this work for a while, particularly Julie, and uh, and takes a lot of information and puts it into, uh, at least for my version, a six-page document, and it's readable and doable. So uh, always glad that we're, we're, we're voices uh, sometimes in the wilderness. But you said something that made me think about students. It was a point about should we educate any students if we can't educate all students and the issues of equity. I find that so interesting because we hardly ever say that about uh, star athletes. Just think about if we treated all of our students like star athletes, we would accept two realities. People walk into the athletic room already with differences and some built-in advantages and disadvantages. Could be height, uh, could be speed, uh, it could be whether or not you wear glasses. <laughs> exactly. And all of these things exist. And we pick uh, the people we think are going to do well. And we try to provide coaching. But we never say anything like, well, if we can't get one great athlete together, then we'll make sure that no one plays on Friday or Saturday morning. I just think the way. Yeah, it's for me, this is a political will issue. It's not a research issue. It's not even a resource issue. Uh, is just whether or not we want to continue to play with other children, people's children as if it's a, a game of social engineering, or if we can accept the fact that there are some built-in uh, inequities and things that we can change and the things that we can't quickly is to work with what we have. But yeah. that's just so me. well put. It's like it's such an important conversation to have, but it can't paralyze us. Because no, nobody wins, right? Nobody wins. Yeah. Nobody wins. Oh, well, very well put. Well, on my side of the fence, uh, my former home state of California, uh, they have 6.1 million students, uh, more than any other state in the country. And their governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, has said in a Los Angeles Times article, uh, the title is Social Distancing in a Classroom. Newsom suggests major changes when schools reopen. And that's from April 14th. And he's saying what all of us realize, that when schools open, they can't open the way they close, which means, quote, we can't do things as usual. 
But he's going a step further by saying that we've got to find a way of practicing social dis- distancing within the classroom itself. So I've had a chance to, you know, grow up as a kid in Los Angeles, uh, went to schools, you know, built like traditional schools have been for over 100 years. Uh, there are a couple of challenges you have. Number one is just simple uh, uh, the makeup of the room. Uh, some rooms in California were built to host X number of students per classroom based upon state codes and state regulations. If you were to all of a sudden move from, let's say, 25 students a class uh, to 12 solely for the purpose of social distancing, you've done two things. You've increased uh, the number of classroom space you will need, and you've also increased the number of educators and adult support systems that should be in place to make that happen. So while I agree that we should think about it, you already have at least challenges with the physical space. Uh, number two is going to be money. Uh, where's the money going to come from to invest in this? I'm pretty sure there are a number of Silicon Valley investors, uh, some hedge uh, hedge uh, fund people and others who will say, hey, let's get creative. Maybe we'll adopt a couple of school systems and we'll find a way to do it. But the governor is also saying, yes, let's make sure that online learning continues. You know, it's funny, we call it distance learning at the same time we're talking about social distancing. But prior to this, (laughs) people in our community were talking about online learning and blended learning and just different ways. But now distance has somehow become almost synonymous with with, with the healthcare crisis. That's just more about semiotics. Um, I think the governor is onto something. Uh, I think the state superintendent has also announced the need to continue online learning. And in the article, there's a uh, some final thoughts from Caprice Young, who's a longtime friend of ours and who's been a reformer, also a state leader in education. And she says, let's create more individualized instruction that's not based on the old factory model. And she's saying that students should progress from grade to grade based upon competency. And I'm a big believer in the competency model, that it's not just uh, seat time, that it's actually meet time, meeting the standards, meeting the criteria we think is important. So California has been a bellwether for a number of reasons. And I think as the governor uh, talks about this in California, other governors, state superintendents and state leaders and even local leaders and parents are going to have to say, if we're going to social distance, what does it look like physically and how are we going to pay for it? But those of us who've been doing this for years in our back pocket, we're going to simply pull out the card that said, Schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. And that means is let's look at the online and blended model because the blended model in ways can probably help with some of the social distancing. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about competency-based learning, it's sort of like we've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. But it's really interesting to think that, you know, you're going to have some outliers, some some folks who are willing to take risks who are going to do it. I mean, I think about like the, the rocket ships charter schools, networks, and, you, you know, there, there are folks that have, have, have done this and can do it well. We know that, that it can be done, but what does it take to move entire systems to realize, too, that not only can you do blended learning, but that you can do it in a competency-based way? And, and it's about changing the mindset of the public, too, and the mindset of parents. You know, it's, um, I know in, in our own school experience right now, I'm hearing from folks in our own community who are saying, well, 
but my child needs to be, I'm not satisfied unless they are in front of that Zoom screen, you know, for the same amount of time that they would be at school. (laughs) It's thinking, I'm thinking, wow. So we are so as a society embedded in this idea of like it's seat time that counts. And this, this goes right to thinking about how states are going to deal with graduation requirements, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I think you make a really important point here about how we this could have the potential. And even thinking about in the fall or in the summers, we go back, this idea that we will have to continue socially distancing has the potential to finally maybe push us to where we need to be in thinking about what true competency-based instruction really looks like and feels like for for communities um, to to change our mindset. Um, Coming up, we've got Michael Horn with us. So I think you know Michael Horn, um, Gerard. A lot of our listeners will at least know of his work. And um, I suspect that he's going to have a lot to say about this as well. Sure he will. And we're back this time with Michael Horn. Uh, Many of you know Michael Horn, or at least you know his name. He serves as the head of strategy for the Entangled Group, an education venture studio, and as a senior partner for Entangled Solutions, a strategy consultancy. He's also the co-founder of and a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Michael is the author and co-author of multiple books, white papers, and articles on education, including the award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, and the Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. Both great books, by the way. He also is executive editor at Education Next and is a venture partner at Next Gen Venture Partners. BA in history from Yale and MBA from the Harvard Business School. Quite a bio. Michael, welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you here. And you are here um, in Massachusetts as well, where we saw snow this morning, just to keep up with the weather theme of, uh, of everything. How are you, are you staying warm? Yes, I am. It's a pleasure to be with with, with you all virtually uh, amidst this time, uh, even amidst this crazy weather that just surprises us in the middle of April. Yeah, well, we're getting used to surprises these days, I would say. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Even when the day-to-day seems um, very similar, sort of, I've found myself wondering, what what day is it exactly this morning? But. (laughs) We're, we're so happy to have you and want to jump right in because I know Gerard and I, we both have a lot of questions for you. Um, but to lead off, let's, let's talk a little bit about your mentor, the late Harvard professor Clayton Christensen, who died in January, a, a great mm-hmm. loss to our community and I'm sure a great loss to you personally. He was such an innovative hero to many of us in education and love to give you a minute to share with us and, and with our listeners um, what do you think are the big lessons from his life and his work and with specific, um, specifically thinking about K-12 education policy? Um, what yeah. is it that he should help us remember? Yeah, I appreciate you asking the question. It was, you know, obviously Clay had struggled a lot with his health uh, over the last decade of his life and uh, in, in the time that I knew him. Uh, and, and and yet even still, it was such a... Uh, trying time, uh, his passing, but it was also an incredible time because the outpouring of support from the community that both knew him and didn't know him uh, and the lessons from his life, you know, not just his innovation work or disrupting class uh, and, and sort of impact on education and innovation more broadly, but also just how he lived his life as a person. He wrote a really influential book, How Will You Measure Your Life?, uh, that I think has proved incredibly important and, and and I think has lessons actually for K-12 education because 
two of the big themes that came out of his passing were uh, around his just love for people and his and and how love undergirded everything he did. And a story was told at his funeral by one of his kids that uh, when he first started teaching, actually, it, it was going horribly wrong. It was just nothing was working for him. And, and anyone who's taken a class with Clay knows he was one of the world's great teachers. And uh, what he reflected after, you know, half a semester or something of this was that he just wasn't loving his students enough. And so before any time he taught, he would uh, uh, take a moment to pray and say, basically, you know, he was deeply religious and he'd say to God, please grant me the strength to love my students and, and show them through my teaching and connect with them in these ways. And I think that love he had for humanity is something that all teachers ought to remember also, right? When they're working with students, uh, it, it really helps uh, lubricate society in a way that, and, and show people that, hey, I believe in you and you have great potential that I think is enormously important. The second thing was Clay sort of had this uh, moment where he said, you know, my, my life isn't going to be judged at the end of the day by um, how many individuals I've touched but instead of the depth of impact on each of those individuals. And, and in essence, his, his point was God doesn't have accountants uh, in heaven. Uh, they are consigned uh, to somewhere else. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't need to measure things by traditional uses of data. Instead, uh, we should be thinking about the depth of impact that we have on each individual's life that we come uh, into contact with, um, which I think is similarly uh, really important for K-12 learning. And then, the, the final thing, and, and this maybe gets a little bit more to your question, which is, I think one of the big misinterpretations of Clay's work was that innovation is an event. And what I think he really taught was that it's a process. It's, it's a process that actually has well uh, uh, tried and true rules about how it does and doesn't work. And that if you follow those organizations that are maybe dysfunctional or struggle and so forth, they, they can actually do remarkable things. And, and far more important than sort of, uh, you know, thinking of disruptive innovation as this cataclysmic event that happens, how do you harness it and create a process whereby you're always improving uh, to serve all of your learners better and better over time, um, I think is a really critical lesson and, and something that all uh, policymakers in schools ought to be seeing that we're constantly a work in progress to get better. And that's actually the, that, that should be by design and that should be what we model for our learners. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. And I'd have to say probably many of the parents who are at home right now in the role of teacher for the time <laughs> being, or in the role of, you know, home educator, home educator for the moment should probably take a deep breath and think about, um, you know, <laughs> saying that little prayer or mantra to yourself. <laughs> to I know I do it every morning right now. I, so, I'm, yes. I'm right there with you. And maybe we should also say it for the heroic teachers who are trying to help our kids <laughs> at this moment too, because we're all doing it. Um, really interesting thought there about innovation, not being a cataclysmic event, but being a process. And I'm wondering, so given this current moment, um, which feels cataclysmic and a lot of yeah, us, you know, edgy wonks everywhere are speculating, what's, what is this going to do? Is this going to turn the tide for education? I'm curious as to how you are thinking about this moment, its effect on how we think about K to 12 education going forward. Are we in the beginning of process, mid process? What, what, what do you think? Yeah. 
well, I think first, like stepping back and realizing how, you know, it, it's chaotic, it's crazy. It is clearly an event right now in a way that <laughs> disruptive innovation doesn't typically contemplate. Uh, <laughs> and it's been jarring to all of us, you know, from administrators to teachers to uh, us, you know, as parents to uh, policymakers trying to figure out what does this mean in society and so forth. Um, but also like thinking about had this happened 20 years earlier, just, you know, 20 years ago, the tools that we've been able to marshal uh, in online learning uh, and, and, and broadband connectivity and so forth to even be able to contemplate a world of uh, continued learning for large swaths of our population. And, and obviously there's some significant gaps that we need to be thinking about, but uh, for large swaths of the population literally would not have been possible 20 years ago. You know, the conversations and, and ability to do what we're doing right now is, is truly amazing. Um, and so I think that first it's worth stepping back and recognizing that amidst all the craziness and so forth, we are actually doing something that is historic in its own right, and, and we should recognize it as such. Now, I think the second part of your uh, question then says, well, okay, so that's been a big process that's led to that point that we could even pull some of this off. And what do we do next? Because at some point, uh, you know, students will go back to brick and mortar schools. Uh, parents will be very happy <laughs> to see them go in some cases. And uh, realizing that school plays an incredibly important custodial role, but you're going to have this widespread of learning that's occurred, right? Where some students, I think, actually will have accelerated. Some students uh, will have stagnated. Some students will have lost ground, right? And, and this incredible spread that we know has always been existed uh, in K-12 classrooms, but is going to get that much more significant. And, and from my standpoint, you know, the goal is not to create a virtual learning system in the future, but it's to create a new uh, set of education processes that can acknowledge that we all come in with different background knowledge, different competencies, different skill sets, and how do we best deliver the right uh, uh, educational experience for a given student at the right time so that they can keep making progress and that we can measure the growth in terms of mastery um, of each individual. And so from my perspective, like the big opportunity right now, whenever it is that we come back, is how do we start to shift the landscape uh, to really focusing on each individual and, and measuring the progress of each individual as opposed to sort of our traditional way of thinking about school as, as uh, you know, something we deliver en masse to individuals and, and, and measure the average uh, of, of who's proficient and who's not, um, but actually get much more granular and, and understanding uh, each learner's uh, uh, growth and trajectory, if you will. Those are great responses, uh, Mike. This is Gerard. Good to hear your voice. Likewise, sir. You know, what's interesting is, as I heard you answer the first question, it made me think about how we actually met, and it was through a mutual contact mm. named Giselle Huff. Uh, yes, many years yes, ago, she and I were on the board, uh, in fact, for uh, Education Next, and she said, Gerard, there are a couple of guys you need to meet because they are at least 15 years ahead of the game as we're thinking about innovation. And of course it was you and, and Dr. Christensen. So uh, I've been following your work and, and been an admirer of what you're doing. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, it, it, look, it's been a pleasure watch. I mean, you obviously in Florida and Virginia did some important work also to advance, frankly, you know, the underpinnings of a lot of these ideas. So uh, deeply appreciate, uh, deeply appreciate that. No, glad to be of service. 
In 2009, we had 1.5 million students who were learning online, which is pretty good. But if you fast forward to 2019, we had 2.7 million students who were learning online. It's an 80% increase. You've had a chance to look at the national landscape. Which states are the digital learner leaders and which one still lagging behind? Yeah, you know, places that were really far reaching, like Utah, for example, um, or Louisiana or, or Florida, I think were really the states where we saw the, the, the smartest moves being put in place to not just simply expand uh, online or digital or blended learning, right, but, but to create sound frameworks to the earlier point that, that would cause educators to continue to innovate to get better. So, for example, in Florida, when the Florida Virtual School, right, was put in place, they, uh, you know, the big statement was, we're not just funding you for enrollments of having students uh, sit in virtual seats, but actually we will pay you when students demonstrate mastery. Those sorts of pivots, I think, have put states like that far ahead of, uh, you know, places where I am in Massachusetts, where we've uh, t remained tethered to traditional notions of time as we've thought about this move into online and blended environments. You look at a place like Utah, uh, they have figured out that, uh, you know, just 15 minutes a day of uh, instruction on a, on, on a program from the Waterford Institute uh, for pre-K learners uh, can allow students or children who come from backgrounds where they don't get uh, access to, you know, the number of books and spoken words and responses from adults that uh, spur early learning can make a dramatic difference. And they've studied this, a dramatic difference in uh, children's preparedness for kindergarten and, and academic literacy. And so a place like Utah that's put that in place uh, for all of its low income uh, early learners uh, creates an enormous foundation that, you know, it's not online preschools like some of the uh, misleading articles in the media have labeled it. It's, you know, a simple little touch, right? <laughs> that, uh, has created a tremendous foundation, I think, uh, for what we really care about, which isn't the technology for its own sake, but it's using the technology toward learning. And so those are the states that I think really have led. Uh, and, and uh, you know, places like my home state, Massachusetts, New York, uh, have often been laggards because they have, in, uh, their, their instinct has been more putting restrictions in place and thinking about the inputs of this as opposed to focusing on what are the outcomes we really want to see from these experiences and allowing educators and innovators to go get it uh, and, and prove the value in terms of what it actually does for students, not uh, in terms of what we think school ought to look like. And the states you mentioned are ones that had either a reform-minded governor or state mm -hmm. chief at the Department of Education or a state that had uh, really grassroots support through nonprofits and for-profits to get this work done. You know, you mentioned uh, funding and with any conversation about education, we know that uh, money matters, not only how much you bring in, but how much you spend. Some states reimburse digital school or schooling based upon student performance or course completion. You know, mm -hmm. how do the cost structures for online learning work and are there lessons that traditional public schools should learn to emulate what's going on in the digital sector, particularly during this time of national crisis? Yeah, you know, the, the states that have been furthest ahead on this, places like Louisiana and Florida, 
less so in the full-time online space, but more in terms of online courses uh, individually. And, and this is where some of the nuance gets important, but um, have really thought about how do we pay for outcomes uh, for, uh, uh, for students as they actually make progress in these courses. And so that they will not pay a provider until the, uh, mastery has actually been demonstrated. And, and I say mastery just because I think course completion is a step toward that, but um, it's actually not the most interesting step because I can just say someone, right, uh, uh, has mastered a concept, but actually, you know, an end of course assessment, a capstone project, some independent validated assessment, uh, and then paying for that, I think is incredibly important. And frankly, I would love districts to start as they set up contracts with the providers uh, that they work with to start to have the same mentality, put in performance uh, uh, kickers where a provider will not get dollars unless they can, you know, the learners can actually demonstrate mastery on an independent assessment. It's something that uh, our, our friend Joel Rose at, at Teach to Teach to One with New Classrooms has said, you know, I, I would love to be compensated in part based on uh, the outcomes and the performance that I actually exhibit for students rather than promises and studies. Um, and so I, I think the more we can move to a system, you know, it's not wholly going to be on on mastery against academic outcomes there because there's things that we don't measure like uh, custodial care and stuff like that um, that is also important. But tying portions of the funding to real outcome based uh, measurements and the outcomes we actually want to see, and, and I'll just hammer this one, you know, home again. I think our focus as a nation just on simply graduation rates or course completion or things like that adds very easy to very quickly. Uh, you know, game. I think the more we can think about what are the real, you know, what do we really want students to know and be able to do, not in a narrow, reductive way in a test, um, uh, but, but you know, more holistic assessments. And often I think providers can help, you know, generate some of that innovation. I think that'd be an incredible positive uh, and create a system that's focused on continuous improvement for each learner, because uh, there would be some funding tied to that, uh, to, to how they do. Because so many students, more than 50 million, are away from school right now, there's a lot of conversation about online learning. Also, blended learning was more of a conversation beforehand. It likely will come yes. up again. You know, what's interesting is that a lot of charter schools across the country were some of the innovators in providing yes. online and blended learning. And we know that within the charter movement, there's some, uh, let's say, infighting amongst the family on whether or not we should expand it or decrease it or put on more accountability. What would you say to the charter school sector post, um, I didn't say post, returning back to school, many of them were already doing online learning. What would you say to them and to the charter community as we think about how to take this to the next level? Yeah, let, you know, I, it's a great question because infighting, there's been a lot of it. I would say, um, so, so two, two thoughts, one, I think far more important uh, than sort of the inputs of how this all looks and, and, you know, what structure a particular school takes either from a tax status or from how much is delivered online and so forth is uh, the outcomes and not outcomes just in a very narrow way, but outcomes that look at the individual growth of each and every learner. So it's not sort of, you know, on average, you know, 60% of your learners did really well and 30% of my learners did well at this arbitrary point in time. But like, what was the starting point of those learners and how much did they progress? Um, and not tethered by their grades, but like actually where did they start, right? What, what do they know and can do? And let's measure them from there. 
um, I think is a way more important uh, uh, way to think about this. And so I would say focus on the outcomes, not the inputs, but the outcomes of each individual child, as opposed to this sort of mass look at, at what we think students should be able to do on average that, that doesn't understand from where everyone is coming and, and the heroic acts that some of these places do. You know, I, just to be super tangible about it, our current system says that if you enter the fifth grade at a second grade reading level or second grade math level, and you make two years of progress, so by the end of it, I'm uh, reading or doing math at a fourth grade level. If that happens, right, we should be singing from rooftops about the growth we've just created for, for, for that student. But the current system will give a fifth grade test at the end of that year. And that student, obviously, because they're now on a fourth grade level, they're not going to pass or look proficient. And so we're going to judge that student, that teacher, that school as a failure. That's crazy. And it creates all sort of terrible incentives where educators in the schools have the incentive to focus on the people on the bubble uh, and not those who most need the support at the low end uh, who really need support to grow. And it just creates a cascade of, of unfortunate incentives. And, and that's when I say we need to focus on individual growth and the actual circumstances of kids. It's not about dumbing down expectations. It's about really actually accelerating the learners uh, who start from the, the biggest disadvantages to help each and every one. The last thing I would say is in, in higher education, um, I, I'm, on the, I'm, I'm the founder of a group called the Education Quality Outcome Standards Board, uh, which says, you know, higher ed institutions have different missions, they have different purposes, but we've created a set of standards that they can say, these are the ones that apply to my learners, and we're going to have an audited trail to show the outcomes uh, for what we've actually done for learners. And, and it's across learning outcomes, completion, and in, in that case, it's return on investment and salary growth uh, and, a, and a host of metrics. I'd love to see something uh, similar put in place for K-12 schools. So if you have a virtual school that maybe says, hey, we take students who are five years behind, you know, really bad social experiences in traditional schools, and, you know, our, our mission is to help, you know, these students stay with us for longer than, than maybe age 18 to get to a high school diploma nature and master these sets of competencies. Let's create a framework by which they can have an independent audit that, and they say, these are the standards by which we should be measured that are transparent. And let's judge them based on that, not some one size fits all framework that doesn't make sense for the students that they're serving. Michael, so much of what you said brings a lot of wisdom to our conversation and a lot of truth to where we are today. Kara and I thank you for joining us. Uh, what you had to say, I'm sure, is going to pique the interest of a lot of our listeners. And consider us friends of not only you personally, but also to your board and your professional associations. Uh, we're always looking for good people to bring onto the learning curve uh, so they can share their ideas. So know that this is a platform for you and your community. Hey, I, I deeply appreciate both your leadership and thanks for having me. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for being here. And to our listeners, you can also find Michael at michaelbhorn.com and check out his new book, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. And here's our tweet of the week. It is from David Osborne. It says, my latest article D.C.'s officials are blocking high school graduation and college opportunity for hundreds of students. And this is really a conversation about school buildings in Washington, D.C. that remain empty today. 
and some have stood empty for years because elected officials are defying the law that requires that they offer the buildings to charter school operators. And the human costs and the financial costs that this is having is uh, a tragedy. And in particular, given where we are right now, having as many school buildings accessible to students, to educators, to families and others is really important. I've had a chance to see this up and up front and close. As a number of you know, in the late 1990s, I actually worked for DC public schools uh, as a legislative liaison. And even back then we had questions about buildings and whether or not they should go to charter schools. At that time, charter schools were just getting off the ground. You fast forward today, we're still having the conversation. I think because of where we are uh, right now as a nation and particularly with DC being the nation's capital, and uh, second largest charter school market in the country, that we should at least push a pause on politicking about the good, bad, and the ugly of charters or the good, bad, and ugly of traditional schools and really say, if we have buildings that are available, what can we do to open them up in the interim to make them available for more students, particularly if we're looking at the prospect of social distancing within buildings? So I think David brings up... uh, what could be a touchy issue in DC public schools and for the charter school community. But from a human standpoint, I think this is an opportunity for us to just think broadly and was glad to see this uh, tweet of the week. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, thanks to David for just sort of always, you know, pushing it a little bit because the fact that we are still having these arguments and certainly not just in DC, but it's a, it's a great place to look at because of the share of um, students that attend charter schools in the city. Um, It's, it's a really good point. And we should all um, not forget that, that these political battles still rage on and it's probably time to let it go. (laughs) So let it go. Oh, I mean, Gerard, we've been looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Gerard Robinson sings Frozen. <laughs> Given the weather where you are, you guys probably can appreciate it. <laughs> always, always has to get it in. All right, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dare you to do this with next week's guest. Who actually, she's living a lot closer to you, but she's one of the most lovely human beings. Period. Let alone in the education reform movement. A friend of yours, a friend of mine, Dr. Ashley Burner. Deputy Director of Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. She will, she will, I know Ashley will, will, instead of poking fun at my Northeastern discomfort, she will, she will feel, have some empathy for me, Gerard. But um, we're going to be happy to have Ashley with us. And as you know, we can talk to Ashley about, well, I mean, just take your pick. Curriculum, civic engagement, pluralism. So it's going to be a great conversation. I hope everybody comes back next week. And Gerard, until then, I'll be I, I'm I'll be looking forward to your next rendition. Maybe a little from Frozen Two. You never know. I'll try to keep it interesting. Okay, it, it's a good one. Watch it this weekend if you haven't. <laughs> Take care. Enjoy the sunshine and vitamin D. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Uh-huh.